following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information about Trinity Grace Church, go to www.trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. So glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest this morning with us. We love seeing new faces here, and we hope that you experience a warm welcome and a meaningful worship service this morning. And if you need anything or have questions that we can be of help with, please pull me aside after the service. Pull somebody aside next to you that looks like they know what they're doing. They likely do. Uh, We would be honored to make you feel more welcome and serve you this morning as our guest. As most of you know, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark over the past few months, and we have four more Sundays after this Sunday left in this Gospel. And it's been mentioned that Mark's Gospel is believed to be the earliest Gospel out of the four that we have in our Bibles. And it's a Gospel that was written by Mark as he records eyewitness accounts from Jesus's, one of Jesus's closest friends and followers, Peter. Uh, And up to this point, we've seen Jesus calling disciples to himself. We've seen Jesus performing miracles on the pages of this gospel. We've seen Jesus reveal more about who he is as we follow along Mark's account of Christ's life. When I was in seminary back in St. Louis, I had an Old Testament professor who was one of my favorites, and he would begin his class the same way every time. As he entered the classroom, he would say, Boker Tov class, which is Hebrew for good morning. And we'd respond, Boker Tov, Jay. And he would then say, start with the Bible, to which we'd respond, not with the commentary. Start with the Bible, not with the commentary. And then he'd say, context, to which we'd respond, is king. Context is king. It's an important principle of biblical interpretation. When you come upon a passage in the Bible, it's always worthwhile to look what comes directly before and directly after that passage. And oftentimes it helps you understand the passage you're studying more deeply. Well, our passage this morning, it comes right on the heels of Jesus calling children to himself. People were bringing children to Jesus and the disciples, they rebuked the crowd for this partly because children weren't looked on with much favor or warm feelings in that culture, like like they are in ours. Anyway, Jesus grew angry because his disciples were turning children away. And Jesus says in verse 14, before we get into our passage, he says this, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In other words, children are meant to be an example for us. If you step back and think about children, generally speaking, they receive everything as a gift. They're dependent on other people almost entirely for all of their needs and their wants. They've got no authority. They've got no power. And normally, as you look at children, they're also some of the most happy, joyful people that you'll ever meet. They're happy because they've got nothing, because everything is a gift. They're anxiety-free. They're quick to trust. They simply love in many relationships. And Jesus says that the best way to receive the kingdom of God is to be like a child, to bring nothing. In fact, it's the only way to enter the kingdom of God. 
Well, this morning, as we read the verses that come directly after this passage on children approaching Jesus, we come upon someone who is the complete opposite of a child. The man we read about this morning is a man with possessions. He's a man with power, a man with authority, a man with a moral pedigree. He's a man who's characterized by anxiety. And in the end, he's characterized by sadness. This person encounters Jesus and he has an important question. He's a spiritual seeker. He wants to be assured that he'll inherit eternal life. And to see how Jesus deals with this person and his question, you follow along as I read from Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. It's printed for you in your bulletin. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but not with God for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last in the last first. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder if there is a movie or a book out there that anytime you watch it or read it, it makes you weep. What movie or book in your life is guaranteed to bring tears to your eyes? I have a few books and movies like that in my own life. And one of these movies we watched as a family just last month. We were sitting on the couch as a family on a Friday night, and toward the end of the movie, the emotion began welling up in my heart. And there's times when you can squeak by with hiding it, you know, a tear that maybe falls down the cheek and no one knows you're crying. And then there are times when you just ugly cry, you know, when there's no use hiding it and you just let it out. Well, that happened this particular night at the end of this movie I was on the couch with my family and I couldn't suppress it. And my chest just started heaving in and out. And my kids, they saw it and they got worried and they wondered what's wrong with daddy. 
Well, that movie, which gets me every time, is the great movie Rudy. I'm guessing that many of you have seen this movie. For those who haven't, it's a movie about a blue-collared teenage boy named Rudy Rudiger whose dream is to play football for Notre Dame. And the problem is, though, he's small and relatively unathletic, and he's got poor grades, so he'd never get into Notre Dame on his merit. And so the movie kind of recounts the fact that he first has to get his GPA up at a local community college to get into Notre Dame as a student. Then once he gets into Notre Dame, he's got to try out for the football team and walk on to the football team. And once he's on the team, his whole goal is to dress out for a game. And all of this happens with setbacks, of course, uh, along the storyline. And the climax of the whole movie is when Rudy finally gets to the, the chance to dress out for the final game of his senior year. And he's on the sidelines with really no hope of actually getting in the game until the crowd begins to chant. Now it goes, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. And finally, the coach gives in to the crowd's pressure and he sends Rudy in for the final play of the game. And Rudy gets in the game on defense. He rushes the quarterback and he records a sack. And this should not make a grown man cry, but it does. And the crowd goes wild and the coaches laugh and Rudy is carried off the field and all this happens to really emotional music in the background and that is a recipe for a good ugly cry. We love these types of stories. The types of stories that emphasize self-reliance. We love hearing stories of people who were down and out and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps to make themselves a success. I think of J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series, once a single mother who was struggling to make ends meet, who's now one of the wealthiest women in the United Kingdom, even more wealthy than the Queen of England herself. We prize those who are self-reliant, who can accomplish it on their own. We see it in relationships. We love it when the underdog gets the girl. We see it in sports, especially right now with our brackets in March Madness. We love to see a David and Goliath upset. We see it in work. We love to see someone grind and hustle and finally make things work in big ways. We live in an extremely self-reliant culture. If you can't do it on your own, then you're seen as weak. We love to see people accomplish the seemingly impossible. In fact, it's one of our cultural values as Americans. And this emphasis on self-reliance, it bleeds into other aspects of our lives. And it can especially bleed over into our spiritual life. And this mentality of self-reliance that we value as Americans can be deadly when it comes to our relationship with God. It's a problem because as you read the Bible, you begin to understand that self-reliance is actually the thing that keeps people from God. It's a barrier that makes relationship with him impossible. A self-reliant mentality is a problem for those who desire a relationship with Jesus. And that's why we see Jesus go straight after what this rich young ruler relies on in this passage. We get a test case of self-reliance in Mark chapter 10. And I want us to see three things as we work through this passage. First, we're going to see an example of self-reliance. Then we're going to see an encounter with self-reliance. And then we're going to see a solution to self-reliance. Okay, an example, an encounter, and a solution. 
First, the example of self-reliance we see in our passage, it doesn't really look like self-reliance at first glance. The story seems to take a pretty positive tone from the very beginning. Jesus is setting out on a journey. You need to know that he's heading to Jerusalem at this point in his ministry where he's eventually going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, and they're going to execute him. And as Jesus is setting out on his journey, a man runs up to him. And we learn that this man is young. Matthew, the gospel of Matthew tells us that. And we learn from Luke, his gospel, that he's a ruler. And so he's come to be known as the rich young ruler. And this man, he comes and he kneels in front of Jesus and asks what appears to be a very sincere question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man knows Jesus is a rabbi, and he wants to see what this rabbi has to say about things. And the title, good teacher, that he uses shows that this man actually respects and he admires Jesus. And Jesus responds to him in in a unique way. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And this response from Jesus is likely meant to turn the mirror on this man um, and especially say, no one's good except for God, and that means you. What we see is this young ruler has something important on his mind, though. He comes to Jesus, and he's got eternal life on his mind. He wanted to make sure that he didn't miss out. He had all the other aspects of his life in a row, and now he's turning his attention to the spiritual aspect of life. And this is really the question that everyone is asking, implicitly or explicitly in life. It's what everyone really wants. In fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it reminds us that God has set eternity on the hearts of men and women. We can't erase it. It's in our DNA. This question of how do I inherit eternal life? So this man, he runs up to Jesus and sincerely asks what he has to do in order to accomplish this goal. Right from the beginning, if you've been a part of the church and understood the gospel, you know that this man's question is flawed. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as a group, as a church who knows Jesus, We know you can't do anything to earn eternal life. We know it's a gift that was earned by another on our behalf. We cognitively know this. I know this personally. But functionally, you and I find ourselves living with this man's mentality all the time. What do I have to do? Silently trying to earn God's favor with our behavior and with our lives, feeling better about ourselves when we do something good and stay on track and feeling bad about ourselves when we fail. This is this man's life, trying to earn favor, wondering what he must do. And you see Jesus play the game. He bites in a sense by his answer in verse 19. He says, you know, the commandments, And then it's interesting that he lists out the second table of the Ten Commandments, the second half of the Ten Commandments. It's the part of the Ten Commandments that people can see. The part of the Ten Commandments that deal with our relationship with others. Jesus lists out commandments six, seven, eight, nine, and then he goes back to five. And then he adds one, do not defraud. It's actually not in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. 
which is likely just meant to show to the readers and to the audience that this man obtained his wealth honestly. There's nothing sinister about this wealth in and of itself. This man came upon it without any sort of treachery or deceit. But Jesus, you'll notice, he leaves out the 10th commandment, do not covet, and he leaves out the first four commandments that touch on what we worship. Jesus knows that he's about to get to these things as he deals with this man's heart in a minute. But initially, this seems to be a moral man, and it is. There's no reason to believe that he isn't a good rule keeper from what we see in our passage. Jesus doesn't rebuke him at all. But the young ruler, he comes and he wants reassurance. So you get the sense that he's very anxious about whether or not he's accomplishing enough, whether or not he's doing enough. He wants to be told what to do, and then he wants to go out and get it done. And after it's done, he likely wants to come back and double check and ask again because he doesn't want to miss any of the fine print. Self-reliant people always want to make sure they're doing the right things. And this self-reliant mentality is slavery. It's slavery that Jesus came to set us free from. This mentality that says, you tell me what to do and I'll go out and I'll do it. And it leads to two different forms of slavery. On one hand, it can lead to pride and self-righteousness. Because if things are going well and we're feeling good about our spiritual lives and we're behaving, then we tend to look down on others that aren't doing as well and that aren't behaving as well as us. We accomplish our list of rules. Maybe it's something like reading your Bible and praying for 30 minutes every day, giving a certain percentage of your income to the church or local missions, or maybe it's making sure that you just show up and go to church every Sunday. And these are good things, things that we all should do. But if we're not careful, we can slip into believing that they earn God's favor. We've set up a list of rules in our minds that we can accomplish. And as a result, we feel good about ourselves and we look down upon those who don't accomplish what we can accomplish. And it's a self-reliant list, one that we can accomplish to feel good about ourselves. And this really makes God out to be a huge vending machine, where if I do this and this and that, then he has to give me what I desire, or he's not allowed to give me sickness or turmoil or trouble in my life because I don't deserve that. That's one hand. The other hand, the other way this mentality can lead to slavery is it leads to anxiety. Just like this young ruler, we're always scared that we've missed something. We always feel that nagging sense that something more can be done. One more prayer, 10 more minutes of Bible study, a little bit more of my money given. And the young ruler had this haunting sense as he approached Jesus that he hadn't done enough. So self-righteousness and anxiety are are forms of slavery. How appealing does a never-ending to-do list sound? I mean, even worse, a nagging sense of anxiety about things that you might have overlooked. Yeah, that's how many of us in this room live functionally and how we approach functionally our relationship with Jesus, I think. We can relate with this young ruler in some ways at least. We can see ourselves in this example of self-reliance. Now, let's turn and take a look at how Jesus relates with this self-reliant young ruler in our passage. We see how Jesus approaches this rich young ruler's self-reliance beginning in verse 21. The first thing to note is that Jesus, and Mark is the only one that recounts this tidbit, 
Jesus looked at this man in all of his confusion and all of his error and loved him. It's such an important point. I mean, I can imagine what I would have done if I were Jesus. That's a dangerous phrase to say, by the way, but I'm going to go ahead and use it this morning. I probably would have said something like, well, have you heard this little sermon I preached a few weeks ago? It's on the podcast. You can go listen to it. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. We would expect Jesus to give this young ruler a lesson or a lecture on how wrong his attitude is, but that's not what Jesus does. We read that instead of bringing shame to this man, that Jesus simply loved this man. And this is so comforting for people like you and me who struggle oftentimes to get it right. Jesus's next move, it flows out of his love. Jesus doesn't operate out of anger or shame. He loves this man and he wants what's best for him. So he gives him one more command. He says, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor and come follow me. With this command, Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. He knows this ruler is wealthy and he probes down to the heart level in order to expose the thing that he is most reliant upon. Now, this is where you might come along and say, I knew it, I knew it. It's all about God needing my money. I've heard this one before, but notice, I want you to notice that Jesus does not ask for this man's money. He asks that he give it to the poor and then to come follow him. Jesus does not want this man's wealth. He wants much more than his wealth. Jesus wants this man's heart. He wants this man's affections. Jesus wants to be the center of this man's entire life instead of the wealth that this man's life revolved around now. This man's wealth is what provided him with a sense of security in many ways. It was because of this man's wealth that he could be self-sufficient. This is a man who had everything that the world values, riches and power, authority, respect, honor, but he lacks the one thing that he needs most, which is nothing. He lacks a sense of neediness. Jesus knows this and he comes and he puts his finger on the source of this man's self-reliance. And this command was too much for this young ruler to bear. Verse 22 says, he left sorrowful. I want you to tuck that in the back of your mind this morning. He left sorrowful because he wasn't willing to part with his riches. And it's worth noting that this is the only man in the entire New Testament in the gospel accounts who went away sorrowful after an encounter with Jesus. Lots of people went away angry and mad. This is the only account that we have of someone interacting with Jesus and leaving sad. In these few verses, Jesus is exposing this man's deepest heart desires. And in a sense, this young ruler's wealth, it gave his life meaning. If this young ruler's wealth was taken from him, then life would cease to have meaning for him. And it's important to say, you know, in passing, I guess, that wealth is never called evil in the Bible. Even in this passage, Jesus isn't going after this man's wealth because wealth is intrinsically wrong. He's going after it because of the grip that it has on this man's heart. Wealth is never neutral. Just like we read this morning from Peter, uh, it's not 
money that is the root of all evil. It's the love of money, how it has a vice grip on our hearts and can have a vice grip on our hearts. And so knowing that, I wonder what Jesus would press on in your heart this morning. What has a grip on your heart that is keeping you from Jesus? In other words, what really claims your heart's affections? What do you functionally worship? To begin discerning that there are some, uh, to begin discerning that, there are some good diagnostic questions that you can ask yourself this morning. Maybe even write them down and ponder them this week. First is, what is it in your life that gives life meaning? Or put negatively, what is it, if taken from you, would cause life to cease to have meaning? Or what can't you live without? Or what feel, fills your imagination on a regular basis? What do you daydream about when you've got nothing else to think about? What creates or soothes anxiety in your heart? When you're feeling anxious, where do you go? What are your biggest fears? These are questions that can help us begin to identify the idols that have captured our heart's affections. And in our passage, Jesus zeroes in on this man's wealth because he bases his security and significance in this wealth. He's pushing against that thing where he finds security because it's that thing that is keeping him from Jesus and eternal life. And Jesus is going to come and lovingly push against those things in our lives that are keeping us from him. I thought about it this week. I don't know why things happen in our lives. We can never say what God is doing with certainty. But oftentimes I wonder if we experience illness or a job loss or relational dysfunction. And maybe just maybe that could be God preparing us to receive the kingdom taking things away from us that our hearts hold so tightly to so that we can move to him something better. These things are often really good things, but not when we value them above Jesus. So we've seen ourselves thus far through the lens of the young ruler. Just like him, we're prone to rely on all the good things in our lives, a great family, maybe a healthy bank account and retirement portfolio, maybe power and position that we have at work, our morality, our talents. Just like him, Jesus is going after those things in our lives that bring us this sense of self-reliance. In our passage this morning, the young ruler hears Jesus and he decides that he can't give up his wealth and he walks away. And as the young ruler walks away, Jesus turns and addresses the crowd. And in verse 23, he says this, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then we see shock and amazement that this caused his followers in verse 24, where it says that they were amazed at this saying. And they were amazed because you've got to know that in that time, in that culture, much like ours, wealth was seen as a great blessing from God. Those who had lots of possessions were believed to be well-favored in God's eyes. The disciples thought that if anyone was going to get into the kingdom of God, it was going to be the wealthy. So Jesus goes on to hammer home the point even further. He uses hyperbole to make his point. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And this saying, I believe, means just what it says. 
Jesus in this passage was talking about a camel, the largest animal known to the people in this region. And he's talking about a needle like the ones that you sew with. It would be like us saying, it'd be easier to fit the ocean in a bottle or it'd be easier to swallow an elephant. And at this saying, the disciples grew even more amazed. Verse 26 says that they were exceedingly astonished. If it's impossible for the wealthy to be saved, then who can be saved? And the issue for us is that we don't feel wealthy, you and I. Relatively speaking, in our culture, in American culture, we're not. I mean, we've got to make decisions every month, if you're like me, about what we can and can't have, what we can and can't do in order to make ends meet, not go over budget. When we measure ourselves against American standards, we're not wealthy, maybe middle class. But, and I'd love for us to get 30,000 feet up, when you look at the worldwide church, which the Bible speaks to, not just us, but the worldwide church, Well, that's a different story. You might know this, but most of the world lives on $2.50 per day. If you make $15,000 per year, you're more wealthy than 80% of the world. If your household makes more than $25,000 per year, you make more than 90% of the worldwide church. If you make over $47,000 per year, you are the 1%. You, you make more than 99% of the world. And so relative to the worldwide church, how difficult it will be for a middle-class American to enter the kingdom of God. We're surrounded by too many good things. So many good things. And they are good things. They are gifts from God. You can take another angle with this idea too. I wonder what you look at in your life and label as blessings from God. We are prone to think the same way that these disciples think, that our blessings are sure signs of God's favor in our lives. If anyone's getting into God's kingdom, it's those who experience God's blessings here. And maybe it's not wealth for you, but it is other things. You look at your life and you say, God must surely look with favor upon me because of this blessing. And with that in mind, we could look at Jesus's words and say, how difficult it will be for someone who is comfortable or how difficult it will be for someone who never experiences unhealth or how difficult it will be for someone who has a perfect marriage for someone who has a satisfying job, for someone with a beautiful, well-put-together family to enter the kingdom of God. Isn't it ironic that the very things that keep us from Jesus can be his blessings to us? The gifts of God, things like influence and material possessions and respect and morality, those are good things, but worshiping the gifts can actually keep us from the gift giver. Worshiping the creation can actually keep us from the creator himself. And in this passage, we're reminded that the only way you can come to Jesus is with empty hands. That's why verse 24 says it's difficult, not just for the wealthy, but for anyone to enter God's kingdom. This leaves the disciples speechless. And in verse 26, they ask, then who can be saved? In in verse 27, Jesus sums it up by saying, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things 
are possible with God. Every one of us this morning, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are a walking grace miracle. Somebody that God has intervened with in order to rescue, and it's nothing you've done, it's all of him. It's all a gift. You bring nothing but nothing. This rich young ruler, he runs up to Jesus at the beginning of our story and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we can resonate because we ask that question of Jesus day in and day out. What can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And I can't help but think that Jesus looks at us with love and says, it's not about what you can do. You've got it all wrong. Quit with your self-reliance. It's not about what you do at all. It's about what I'm going to do for you. And in a very real sense, what we see in this passage is two rich young rulers coming face to face. Think about it for a minute. One rich young ruler who is unwilling to give up his wealth, one who is unwilling to rely on anyone but himself, and that rich young ruler, he turns away and walks, from, walks away from Jesus, the other rich young ruler in our passage. In verse 22, we see the young ruler walk away. It says, sorrowful. Bring that back out in your mind. Because Jesus was calling him to give up the reliance he had on his possessions. And that word sorrowful, it's used somewhere else in the gospel of Mark. It's used one other time in chapter 14, where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, about to be handed over and crucified the next day. And in Mark 14, Jesus said that his soul is very sorrowful. In our passage, the young ruler was sorrowful because he was asked to give up the very thing that was most important in his life, his possessions. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was sorrowful because he knows he's about to have to give up the most important thing to him, which is a relationship with his father, God himself. Jesus was the rich young ruler, if you think about it, who enjoyed equality with God from all eternity past. One who had everything that you and I could ever want, the ultimate self-reliant person, but who was willing to walk away from it all, was willing to make himself nothing, was willing to leave glory and wealth and joy and honor behind. He enters a poverty deeper than anyone had ever known. He gives it all away. And the question is, why? Why would he do that? Well, he does it for you. The ultimate rich young ruler gave away everything to come after you, to rescue you, to love you to make sure that you're able to enter God's kingdom because of what he has done. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you came in order to rescue us, for the way that you came to love us, for the way that you came to pay a debt that we never could pay, for the way that you left riches and glory and honor so that we might be brought in to those riches to that glory, to that honor, as we place our trust and faith in you. We pray this morning that we would do just that and that you would bless us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.